Hi, everyone. I'm Father Graby, and this is the Breakfast Podcast. This is our final episode of this season of Breakfast, and we really hope you've enjoyed this trip around the world and seeing how these different places can open our eyes to the incredible richness of our faith. If you've enjoyed these episodes, learned something, or gotten something out of them, please share them with others. You can help us in our work of spreading the good news, and we're really glad to have you on board. In this episode, we're going to go to the Parthenon in Greece and look at what it means to be a disciple and spread our faith to the world. Any list of the most iconic buildings in the world would have to include the Parthenon in Athens, Greece. It's certainly one of the oldest, built around 2,500 years ago, and has long stood as a symbol of Greece, of democracy, of Western civilization. It dominates the cityscape, towering over Athens as a living reminder of the long and important role that city and that culture have played in world history. It's especially beautiful at night, as modern lighting makes it glow against the dark sky. The Parthenon was built as a pagan temple to Athena, the Greek goddess of wisdom. Ancient Athenians pursued wisdom with gusto, and it's no coincidence that it became the birthplace of philosophy, of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. In the arts and sciences, Greece was unsurpassed in the ancient world. It was here, just in the shadow of the Parthenon, that St. Paul stood up and told the people of Athens about Jesus Christ for the first time. He spoke to them about their religious yearnings, about their altar dedicated to an unknown God. Well, he said, I'm here to make him known to you, to show you where true wisdom is found. He told them about the one God who made everything, who is close to each one of us, who has revealed himself through his own Son, who lived among us, who died, and who was raised from the dead. Some of the people listening mocked him, but others were intrigued. The first seeds of faith were planted, and they said they'd like to hear more. Paul was the greatest missionary in the history of the church. His words in Athens are but one item on an impressive resume, as he traveled around the Mediterranean world telling everyone about Jesus Christ. He endured countless setbacks and hardships. He was shipwrecked and scourged, beaten and imprisoned. He eventually made his way to Rome with St. Peter and preached right there in the heart of the empire until he gave his life for Jesus in the most radical way, dying for him under the sword. But while his story is inspiring, it's not unique. The church has had a missionary spirit from the very beginning. It's part of her nature. In his last words to his disciples, Jesus tells them to go out to all nations, to baptize and proclaim the good news. The upper room in Jerusalem, where the disciples were gathered after Jesus' ascension, became like the nerve center of an explosion as those apostles went out from that room to the ends of the earth, to Greece and Africa, India and Rome, telling the whole world about Jesus Christ. In fact, the word Mass, our central act of worship, comes from the final words of the Mass in Latin, ite misa est, meaning go, it is sent out. The idea of sharing and spreading one's faith might seem odd or old-fashioned. 
That's because we've largely forgotten what faith is. I was in a museum once in Sweden, a very secular country, and they were displaying some religious artworks. They had a sign to explain to the visitors what they were looking at. It was so striking I took a picture of it. The sign said, Religion today is regarded by most as a private matter, somewhat like a personal taste in music. During the Middle Ages, religion was a way of life and permeated the whole of society. God was almighty, and both angels and demons walked the earth, capable of interfering in everyday life. It makes Christianity sound like mythology, an irrational fantasy, a personal opinion. But if there's anything religion is not, it's a matter of opinion or a matter of personal taste. It's not the same as saying, I like vanilla and you like chocolate. Faith is of a different nature altogether. It makes a truth claim, a statement about reality. That statement is objective, something that is true whether I accept it or not. I might reject or disbelieve the laws of gravity, but that's not going to stop me from falling if I step off a ledge. In other words, truth doesn't depend on my thoughts. The same goes for faith. The claim that God exists is either true or false. He either exists or he doesn't. He can't do both. Likewise, Jesus either is God or he's not. He can't be God and not be God. That's an absurdity. It's one or the other, making the position we take either right or wrong. The question is, how do we know? We can't prove it the same way we can prove a mathematical equation. It's not that type of category. But that shouldn't be an obstacle. We believe all sorts of things every day without proof. A family member tells me that a friend is ill or a relative had a baby. I don't say, thanks, but I need to verify that on my own. I take his word for it because I find him credible, worthy of belief. The same is true with faith. I believe that what the apostles have handed down to us is true, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. Now, claims like that might make us uncomfortable or sound arrogant, but maybe we need to look at it differently. The truth is not a trophy to be hoisted or a weapon to be wielded. It's a gift to be shared. We want everyone to hear this good news, to join the celebration. That's the positive side of the coin. The other side is that we don't want anyone to lose out on heaven. And the only way there is through Jesus and his church. Remember, Jesus didn't say he's a way. He said he is the way, the only way. St. Paul writes that there is no other name than Jesus given to us to be saved. That leads us to one of the more controversial doctrines, which says that outside the church there is no salvation. It's a truth of our faith, but one you don't hear a lot because it's easily misunderstood. It can sound like we believe that anyone who is not a baptized Catholic is going to hell. That's not what it means and it's not what we believe. What it does mean is that while the ordinary and revealed means of salvation remains sacramental baptism, those extraordinary cases where someone gets to heaven without having been baptized, well, they get there only through and because of the Catholic Church. Let me offer an everyday example. Let's say my house has the only Wi-Fi router in town, but the signal is so strong that my next-door neighbors are able to use it. 
Even someone further away, down the block, can get a weak signal from me. They can't use it as much or as quickly, but they get something. So, does my neighbor have Wi-Fi? Yes and no. They don't have their own Wi-Fi, a system separate from mine, but they do have something. There's one router that's strong enough to spill over, and others are able to tap into it, even if they think they have their own and don't realize they're actually using mine. That's how it is with the church. All grace and truth come through the Catholic Church. It contains the fullness of what God has revealed to us. Other churches and religions have elements of that, belief in the Trinity, for example, or in one God. The closer they are to the Catholic Church, the stronger that signal gets. And why would we hope that someone might get lucky and pick up a faint signal, when instead we can invite them in and they can have that full connection for themselves? Imagine having a huge feast and someone is outside starving. Or someone is suffering from a disease and you have the only cure. You can't force someone to eat or take medicine, but imagine not offering it. Imagine keeping that food or medicine to yourself, afraid to interfere or offend. Our hesitation when it comes to sharing the faith is often a question of faith. Do we really believe this? Do we believe that this is the truth that saves us and sets us free? If not, then those first apostles and all the great missionaries throughout history just look like deranged zealots. Let people alone, let them find their own way. Why are you sacrificing so much? Well, because they knew that their labors were a matter of life and death, literally and eternally. We still live very much in missionary times. The other day I was walking through a church and a boy was there with what might have been his grandmother. The boy wasn't all that young, but he pointed to the large crucifix over the altar and asked his grandmother, who is that? It was a question people asked 2,000 years ago, when entire nations heard the name Jesus for the first time. In some ways, though, our task is even more challenging than what the apostles faced. They were preaching the good news to people who had never heard it before. Nowadays, at least in the post-Christian West, we more often encounter people in cultures that have heard the Christian message and have rejected it. But that shouldn't deter us. It should motivate us. Sometimes ads for movies that have been in theaters for a while or being reshown will have the line, see it again for the first time. We need people to hear it again for the first time to hear the good news with fresh ears. And we need to be the ones who tell them. God gives us the grace to do that. Confirmation is the sacrament that helps us give that witness. It deepens our baptismal grace and gives it a public dimension. The word confirmation means strengthening. It strengthens us for the task of discipleship. Traditionally, in a confirmation ceremony, the bishop taps the cheek of the person being confirmed. The gesture is meant to symbolize that the one confirmed is now a soldier of Christ, strengthened for spiritual battle, to go out and win souls for Christ. The word witness means martyr. The martyrs give the ultimate witness to Jesus by dying for him, imitating his self-sacrificing love. We might not risk martyrdom for our faith, but we might risk ridicule or isolation or hostility. Real discipleship is hard work, and it requires real faith. It also requires knowledge. 
There's an old saying that you can't give what you don't have. Yes, it's important to have faith, but we have to know what we believe. In my most recent parish, we have a thriving series of theology classes for adults. Some of them are looking to become Catholic, but many of them are cradle Catholics who last had formal instruction in the faith as children. They are fascinated to discover how rich our faith is, how cogent and logical the answers are. That desire to know our faith stems from and fuels our love of God. Think about when you first meet someone you're attracted to. If it only stays on that level, it's pretty superficial. You go out on a date and you get to know that person, where they're from, what they do, what are their interests and hobbies. The more you know that person, the more deeply you're able to love them. That's how it should be in our relationship with God. We shouldn't be content with having a vague idea of who God is and occasionally checking in with Him. He should be the most important person in our life. And He has revealed Himself to us precisely because He wants that relationship with us, in this life and forever in the next. There are so many resources out there, in print and online. A good place to start is the Catechism, which explains the faith in a clear and systematic way. It covers all the basics. And then you can go deeper on particular areas that interest or confuse or challenge you. That allows us to be effective disciples. One of the reasons I studied the faith a lot growing up was that I was always being asked about it. I went to public high school and a large secular university in New York City, and people were constantly questioning me about Catholicism. I needed to have the answers ready and explain them in a way people could understand. That work is called apologetics. When we're apologists for the faith, it doesn't mean we're sorry to be Catholic. It means we can explain and defend the truths of our faith in a coherent way. Many people refrain from that because they are embarrassed or simply don't know what to say. St. Peter writes that we should always be ready to explain and defend the hope that we have, gently and reverently. Many Catholics, though, are uncomfortable speaking about their faith. They bought into the secular idea that religion is a private affair a holy little secret. Some sayings out there reinforce this misunderstanding. There's a saying that's sometimes attributed to St. Francis of Assisi that says, preach the gospel always. If necessary, use words. There's a big problem with that saying. First of all, St. Francis never said it. Secondly, and more importantly, it's wrong. Jesus used lots of words. So does St. Paul and the apostles and St. Francis himself. We are a people of the word and of words. Insofar as that saying means don't be preachy, fine. And our behavior and conduct should reflect our Christian faith and lead others to it. But we have to talk about it. And that should come naturally to us. We share with people all sorts of things we enjoy. Trips we took, movies we saw, our favorite sports teams and restaurants. How much more often and naturally should we bring up the most important thing of all? Remember those moments when you had some amazing news? A new job, an engagement, college acceptance, and you couldn't wait to share it. You felt like you might burst, like you might walk up to a total stranger and tell him and not care how crazy you looked. You couldn't keep this news to yourself. That should be true when it comes to the good news. The news that God is real, that heaven is real, that Jesus is alive and risen and knows us and loves us. The apostles were bursting with that good news when they exploded out of the upper room. And they really did go up to total strangers, thousands and thousands of them, to share it with them. 
and Christians have been doing that ever since. 2,000 years ago, no one in Athens had heard of Jesus Christ. How could they have come to believe if they had never heard about him, if no one told them about him? The same is true today for the countless souls who need to hear it again for the first time. Yes, the work of discipleship continues. People might say that St. Paul and all the missionary martyrs who followed, that they knew Jesus Christ was worth dying for. That's true, but it's only half the story. They also knew he was worth living for eternally. And he's counting on us, just as he was counting on those first disciples, to go out and spread the good news. And the time is now. Life is short, and heaven is waiting. So let's get going.